This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Over a period of two years, five children would disappear in Manchester, England, and would never be seen by their loved ones again. Known as the most notorious child murders of their time, the country was shocked when the identity of the two perpetrators was made public. A killer couple was responsible for these brutal murders, a match made between a cruel sadist and, to everyone's surprise, a young female accomplice. This is episode 43, The Myra Hindley Story. Hi, Amy. Hi, Megan. How you doing? Great to see you today and to be back recording this special UK edition of Women in Crime. I'm loving these UK cases. They're so good. Aren't they? And you know, we've had UK requests before and I've put them on the list, but this was really just a great impetus to like start examining the cases that we wanted to. And it's so interesting because their system's so different than ours. And we know this because... Because we taught a study abroad class... We brought our students with us to the UK, and we got to visit prisons and courthouses and police training. We did a full comparative course. So So actually, this is a perfect setup for us to talk about the differences. Yep. Before we discuss the case in detail, though, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor of today's special edition episode, brought to you by Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a streaming service that's rooted in British television. It has a rich catalog of exclusive award-winning series across genres, including mysteries, dramas, comedies, and so much more. Today's the third episode in our special UK edition presented by Acorn TV, The Myra Henley Story. Now, there were a lot of cases to choose from, and this was probably the hardest part for me was narrowing them down. Did you have the same problem? Yes, for sure. Okay, so I chose this case in particular, Myra Hindley, because it's one of the most notorious UK cases, and it has been requested by so many of our listeners that, you know, it was one of those things where I put it on the list and I had it there over and over again. So I thought, this is a great opportunity. I also chose this because it intersects with my teaching interests, which, as you know, are women in crime and serial offenders. So I feel like this was the one for me. Amy, do you know Myra Henley? I don't. I feel silly saying that since you said it's one of the most notorious yeah, cases. Yeah, uh, one of the things I think we, you and I are really great at is picking cases that may be you know, known or may not be, but we don't know them. Like we're, we're often telling each other a new story. I definitely know the name and I associate the name with something very evil, but that's far as I got. Right. And if you see the pictures, which everyone's going to look at and Amy will look at too, you'll know the picture when you see you go, okay, I know there's a famous picture of um, these two that you'll know. Myra Henley was born to a normal working class family in 1942. The family dynamic is going to play an interesting role here, I think. Myra's father was gone for the first few years because he was in the military. And this was during World War II. And so for the first three years of her life, it was just Myra and her mother. Her father returned after the war. Unfortunately, after he came back, he also came back, as many people did from the service, with a substantial drinking problem. And it was a different dynamic in the household. And then shortly after he returned, her sister was born. I mean, this is like the baby boomer thing. Mm -hmm. And Myra's sister was born 
Myra was sent to live very close in the neighborhood with her grandmother. They were financially strapped. This was a poor working class neighborhood. I read different accounts of this, you know. Myra was somewhat somewhat enjoying this because she liked living with her grandmother and because I think she had all the attention over there. And I think because she didn't have to share with her sister as much, it was a good condition. And because she lived so close to home, she could keep going back and seeing her family. So, so she was going back and forth between these two homes is my point. But the accounts of her home with her, her mom and dad were mixed. I read and saw a documentary that said that it was a very loving home. And I have also read, though, in, on multiple, in multiple places that her father was tough. He drank a lot. That seems to be um, confirmed. And he was abusive. And he encouraged Myra to use violence as a solution to her problems with others. That came from him um, kind of consistently. Her neighborhood, while lower working class, was tight-knit. The type where, and this is important, where everyone knew their neighbors and you, you trusted people. And remember also, this is a different era. This is the 1940s. Myra's attendance record at school wasn't great, but she was very bright and she did do well in school when she was there. Kind of like my attendance record when I went <laughs> to school, high school. Myra was also considered pretty fashionable and had sort of an avant-garde look. One of the things that happened to Myra, though, that was traumatic in her childhood, she had a best friend who died of a drowning, and this had a very huge impact on her in terms of her behavior and her religious beliefs. I believe it was a male friend, and she was about 13 years old. And I think why this was also traumatic is that she was going to go swimming with him that day, but didn't. And this was a very close friend. So I think there were some guilt associations. So some say that this was the impetus. This event was like the impetus to her emotional separation from people. But at the same time, she was forming other connections because she also made an effort here to become involved in religion. And she converted to Catholicism following this major event. Fast forward a couple of years. At age 17, Myra would become engaged, but that didn't last very long. Myra liked the idea of it, but found the idea of also traditional life boring, not very exciting. Soon after the breakup with her fiancé, she got a job as a typist, an office job, and this is where she would first meet Ian Brady. Ian Brady had probably what you would view as the opposite childhood, even if we don't know completely Myra's situation. He didn't know his father at all. Ian was born to a single mother who was forced to give him over to another family when he was young. Now, she still visited him, um, and eventually he would return to live with her, but after many, many years. But Ian was a loner. He did not join in with activities by any account. He was an oddball, as people described him. Uh, Ian also began committing crimes at an early age, and by 16... He had amassed several offenses, quite a criminal record. He had served a term of probation already. He had threatened a girlfriend with a knife. He showed serious signs of conduct disorder. Yes, don't most serial killers have conduct disorder as kids? That's correct, because <laughs> conduct disorder is really just the way we label antisocial behavior. But when it's in children, we call it conduct disorder. And when it advances to adulthood, we call it antisocial. So let me just give you some examples because some people might say, what, like, what does conduct disorder look like in children? And just so you know, taken alone, these behaviors don't necessarily indicate your children have conduct disorder, but taken together, um, some of the early signs are certainly physical cruelty to animals and to other children. Mm -hmm. 
that's also part of the McDonald triad, which we've discussed before, you know, the triangle of behaviors that are later to indicate some serial offending. Some of the other signs are biting and hitting, but serious biting and hitting, you know, and, and again, not alone. I see you smiling. Is because your kids bite and hit? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, again, this does not I mean know. on okay. its own, but I know what you were thinking. Um, but regular biting and hitting, theft, regular consistent lying. These kids also uh, will often be engaging in acts of arson pretty young. So taken together, this is conduct disorder. Taken alone, this might be just a normal kid, okay? Myra was quite enamored with Ian from the first day they met. She wrote in her diary frequently about even the smallest things that Ian would do, such as look at her, or Ian made a joke today, or Ian was wearing an outfit I liked today. Were they the same age? Myra was a little bit younger than okay. Ian, actually. So if she was 18 um, when she got this job, then he was in his early 20s. So not a huge age gap, but she's still an 18-year-old. Yeah. Did you have a diary when you were in your teens? I had a diary from when I was 10 years old up till today. You still diary? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. It's not like, dear diary, he's so cute anymore. It's more like <laughs> just like important things, like a very quick few lines a day. That's funny. Do you do it every day? Yeah. Interesting. James has started doing that too. I had a diary when I was about 10, 11. It lasted for like a year. I was like, this sucks. It's I'm so bored. fun to read old diaries. Oh, okay. So fun. All right. Well, yeah. she wrote, I mean, I don't know what, you know. You were right, probably. It was all about who's cute, who liked who. Right, you know, right. Teenage stuff. Now it's like, I really wish my kids would go to bed early so <laughs> I could have an hour to myself. Yes. But anyway, okay. So I think that, you know, the things that Myra were writing probably weren't far off for a 17 or 18 year old girl at mm-hmm. the time who's in a, a diary or 18 year old woman. Ian, however, did not take to Myra right away or as quickly. Uh, some would say this is because Ian wasn't really interested in women. But eventually, the two became a couple, seemingly because Ian was very influential over Myra's beliefs, and he could influence her worldviews to become more like his. Myra tried for a while to get his attention. I mean, it was definitely a good year. Eventually, he asked her out, but I think it was you know her persistence that kind of gave in. And I think it's important to note here, as I said, I think what Ian recognized in Myra was she had such an adoration for him that he could... Um, manipulate or influence. Take advantage of it. You know, he, he had power over her. And I think that uh, that was what was alluring to him. Ian had very distorted political, religious, and sexual views. And he exposed Myra to different worldviews than she had been accustomed to that she had grown up with, you know, in a strict, more disciplinarian, religious home. He introduced her to sadistic sexual behaviors, which they engaged with together. He also influenced her. He denounced religion, and so he influenced her views on religion. Remember, she had been a Catholic. He had an obsession with Nazi Germany and Mein Kampf. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, you know, very influenced by Hitler and Hitler's teachings. I think their first movie might have been the Nuremberg Trials. That's a bad sign. If somebody's interested in that, you might want to run the other way. These are all bad signs, actually, yeah. from Ian. And mm-hmm. I think what you're going to find is it gets much worse quickly. As they're dating and as they've been spending time together and as he can, you know, see that he's influencing her, he first asked Myra to help him with a robbery, which they didn't actually commit. He didn't really ultimately commit this act. I'm not sure if he wasn't really interested. I think what this was more of was a test. He was looking to see, was Myra loyal and how far would she go for him? And in that regard, Myra proved very successful very quickly for Ian. 
So they skipped the robbery and escalated to some of the most serious violent offenses imaginable, those targeting children. Pauline Reed was the first victim of this sadistic duo. Pauline was 16, and on the night of her disappearance, she was all dressed up for a dance that she was supposed to attend with her friends at her school. Her mom, I watched the, docu the documentary, and her mom described her exact outfit and how she walked her daughter to the end of the street, watching her go off and seeing her so happy. And it was, you know, really a sad moment when you heard the description and saw everything. And what happened in this instance is that Myra borrowed a van and drove it. Behind her, Brady was following on a motorcycle. And what he was actually doing was scouting for victims. When Brady saw Pauline walking alone down the street, getting towards, you know, the evening time, he flashed Myra with his motorcycle. And that was the signal that he had picked out his victim. And then it was Myra's turn to jump in. And what Myra's role was to lure the young girl into the van. And this wasn't really difficult for Myra because of the small community they lived in. Myra actually knew Pauline Reed. So she was easily able to get her into the car. And they're like, oh, they're kind of peers, right? How old is Myra at this point? She's not that old. Yeah. So that's the interesting part because Pauline's 16 and I think Myra might have been 20, you know, I mean, not exactly peers, but yeah, yeah, close enough in age. It was a bizarre situation, though, because I watched these two documentaries and they said that Myra asked her to help with some minuscule task. And I'm like, okay, what's that minuscule task? Myra said she lost a glove, but it was really important. And could Pauline help her find it? So random. It's a random bizarre thing. I also don't know how important gloves were then right, or, you know. know, maybe it was expensive. But anyway, Pauline essentially agreed pretty quickly to help her. Was Pauline on her way to the dance or way home? She was on her way to it. And I think she was meeting her friends. Um, so I'm imagining that Myra said, can you just help me find something that'll give you a ride yeah, to your friend's house? Yeah. And again, knew each other. She's a female, two females. It's, it's more innocuous. But what Pauline didn't know is that Ian Brady was going to be following them and would meet up with them. Brady followed them to the remote wilderness of Saddleworth Moor. Moor is a rugged, hilly area covered in mossy grass. And in this unpopulated area, he basically took Pauline alone for a while. There is not much description here except that Myra drove her out there. He walked Pauline out alone. Myra stayed behind, and what we do know is that somewhere in the moors in this area, he sexually assaulted Pauline and slashed her throat, and then he called Myra over to the scene to help him clean up and drive away from the scene. The description here is basically that Myra led the girl in, Ian took her, Myra goes and waits this for him. This is based on whose account? Both of their accounts? This was definitely based on the police account and then Myra's account, okay. but it's also alleged but not proven that Myra participated in the sexual assault on Pauline as well. That information didn't come till much later, and that could not be corroborated later on. I'm not sure about this. Ian had the sadistic tendencies already, and he had been accustomed to harming people. I think that this was Myra's first introduction. And by the way, by all accounts, she was actually excited to help him, and she was excited to be a part of this, not like scared. But I'm not sure on the first go if she would have participated in this. So I think I would take this one with a grain of salt. This is their first victim. Their next victim, a young boy, 12-year-old John Gilbride. How long after? Quickly. This happened all in a two-year period, which is kind of quick because we're talking about they're going to have five victims at the end. So right. for serial offenders, two years, five victims mm -hmm. is yeah. somewhat quick. He was lured by the couple to the car after coming out of a movie. 
Uh, he had gone to the cinema by himself, and with Myra in the car again, he was probably not too afraid. This was a different, again, a different time, a tight-knit community. People were certainly more trusting. You knew your neighbors. John was then, unfortunately, uh, this is going to be a similar pattern. He was taken out to the moors and led by Ian to his death. Ian returned after about a half an hour, explaining that he had strangled the boy with a shoelace because his knife broke in him. Yeah, this is a, I mean, these are brutal crimes. Their next victim, so that's victim number two. And Myra wasn't, didn't take part in that. Myra did not take, we don't know for sure. I will say that we are going to know for sure one of the crimes that Myra took part in. She admittedly, freely admitted that she was an accomplice. She planned it. She drove, but she would say that she did not take part. She would separate with Ian, give him his space to do Mm -hmm. what he was going to do. Their next victim was 12-year-old Keith Bennett. Again, using the same modus operandi, Keith was coaxed in the vehicle. Keith was actually walking the short distance from his mother's house to his grandmother's house in the local neighborhood. He was taken to the moor. Henley followed behind him this time, but she stood as lookout while Brady sexually assaulted and then murdered the boy in the moors. And they left his body. They always left the bodies there. The next murder would be the fourth one, and this would be different. This was the murder of 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Young Leslie was at a fair when she was lured to their car by the promise of a reward to help this young couple carry some bags to their car. They had a couple bags near her, and they dropped to them. They were like food bags and said, oh, would you mind helping us? We'll give you, you know, something for the fair. And so, I mean, she's a 10-year-old girl. But in this instance, when they got her to the car, they didn't take her straight out to the moors. They took Leslie to their home, which marks a very substantial change in their pattern. At their home, they bound her, they gagged her, they undressed her, they photographed her. Ian strangled her. Her body was cleaned in the tub, and they eventually transported her to the moors uh, the next day and disposed of her. But why this is different and why this is significant, there's a couple things. First of all, taking her to the home means they're getting more comfortable. They're, you know, going straight to the moors. They, they don't want to be anywhere near the home. They don't want to see. They're getting comfortable and that's, they're getting more bolder. But they're also then getting more reckless because they are taking a big chance. And this does happen with people when they're getting a little more successful. They mm-hmm. escalate. Things happen a little quicker. And some people are, you know, can perfect their craft, but others are going to take more risks mm-hmm. because they've gotten away with it. Myra was always the lure. This is similar. You know, we've talked about some cases uh, between males and females. Um, I don't know if you remember when we covered Carla Hamulka and mm-hmm. Paul Bernardo. Yeah, that's what I was thinking this whole time. You were. Okay, yeah. I mean, women are obviously easier to trust, especially for, you know, vulnerable victims, children. Um, it also makes me think of the co- case I covered with, it wasn't a male and partner, but do you remember the Melissa Huckabee case? I of think course. This How was, could I forget that? Okay. Ugh. You know, she was easily able to lure her neighbor, San. Sandra can too into the car because Sandra knew her. She's a woman and she's also a mother. So this makes women, you know, because of their gender, um, a better lure. Mm -hmm. They got bolder, but then they got even more bold. And really, I would say they just got careless, arrogant, and stupid on this Mm -hmm. Um, because it was their last victim that would be their downfall of these two serial killers. Brady had allegedly, so Ian had allegedly met 17-year-old Edward Evans at a gay bar 
And the implication was that Brady had lured him to the house with the idea of a a sexual encounter. Now, Brady had been sort of grooming Myra's brother-in-law, David Smith, for some time. Myra's sister, Maureen, was married to David Smith. They were younger. I know at this point, Ian is in his 20s, so is Myra, but David Smith was only 17. And I don't know how old her sister, Maureen, was, but Smith became enamored with Ian Brady and enamored with his lifestyle and saw him, you know, kind of as a badass, Mm -hmm. you know, not knowing. He did not know the extent of Brady's, you know, uh, violent tendencies, but he did know that he was, you know, he engaged in criminal activities. Mm -hmm. And what Brady thought was that he could recruit Smith into his crimes and his lifestyle, but into the whole lifestyle. And so once Brady had Edward Evans at the house and David Smith was there as well. He murdered Evans with a hatchet to his skull from behind. After sexually assaulting him? He didn't sexually assault him, but he murdered him in front of David Smith. This was his way to see if kid could hang. It was, yes. And essentially what happened too was that he put him in the position of, well, now you're in on this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, what happened was basically a terrified David Smith took Ian's orders and he helped clean up the mess and cover up the body for disposal. Mm-hmm. But was Ian, Myra there for this one? Oh yeah, Myra's yeah, in there okay. cleaning in the kitchen, you know, mm-hmm. as if though this was not such an abnormal activity yeah. and she was definitely present for this one. And she wasn't at all appalled or whatnot. It was it was pretty obvious that she had become accustomed to this. But they underestimated David Smith because he went home afterwards and he and his wife called the police. He did not want anything to do with murder. This was a step too far for him. He also mentioned a suitcase that the two had filled with incriminating evidence of their crimes in the house. He saw them do it, and they removed the suitcase from the house. So now the police are thinking, okay, great, we have a witness to something, but they're like, what's in this suitcase? You know, if we're going to search the house, what are we going to find if they've moved everything out? So while they were executing a search of the house based on this phone call, The police found a ticket for a left luggage station in Manchester. Have you heard this term before? I don't know if we just don't know the term, but left luggage is a place where you can leave luggage short term. Yeah, I wouldn't know it was a thing either. And so the police got the ticket and they went and retrieved the suitcases. When they went through the suitcase, they found everything to help them identify what Myra and Ian had done and who their victims were. Here's where I said, remember, Leslie um, Ann would be different Mm -hmm. because they took all those photographs of her in their home. So they found the photographs of her. And what's even worse, Amy, is that they found a tape that Ian and Myra made recording her. It was so upsetting that most of the officers cried when they were listening to it. Apparently, um, Leslie cried out for her mother and prayed to God to help her on this 16-minute tape. And here's what else it showed, though. That Myra was involved? Not only was she involved, but she's sadistic too, and she enjoyed it. She's cruel. And it shows it clearly that it's not just Ian and she's the subdued one. She was an equal participant here. Um, So that's why it's- So she was involved in the abuse. Absolutely, yes. She was involved. The police were also able to match fingerprints or photographs to Myra and Ian from the suitcases. The photographs also helped because they had photographs at different parts in the moors, and the police were like, they're taking photographs near their grave sites. So they were able to help with locating and retrieving some of the victims. There were a lot of photos, and they they searched for miles and miles, but you have to understand the, the land is very difficult. And on one of the searches, they just didn't find anything, you know, for a long time, and then 
an officer went out to like relieve himself and wound up coming across a bone. And when it was fully prodded, it was determined to be a small girl. It turned out to be Leslie Ann. So that's how they found her. Well, now we're moving to, you know, Ian and Myra are arrested and they go to trial. When they went to trial, Ian tried to protect Myra. He actually wrote to her, giving her ideas for how to distance herself from the crimes. But Myra was more resolute that she and Ian were both innocent. So she was loyal to him prior to trial as well. This is a change too. Normally what happens is someone turns on the other one. They did not turn on each other. She refused to blame Ian to save herself. And Ian wouldn't turn her in either until much later, that is. Unfortunately, her strategy failed. In fact, had she listened to him, I think she might have had a very different outcome. We've seen this happen before, as we were just talking about case in point, Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernardo. Remember, Carla struck a deal. She cooperated and she got 12 years, whereas Bernardo got life. He's up for parole, but he'll never get out. There's also a couple that I thought of, though, um... Craig Titus and Kelly Ryan, have you ever heard of them? They murdered their assistant, Melissa James. I remember this. Uh, They were both involved, and he wound up with something like 20 to 50 years, but she got paroled at 12 years. Again, for turning on him. For Myra, this likely have proven a successful strategy in terms of her sentence because these two were both found guilty. Ian was ultimately charged with the murders of Leslie Ann Downey, John Gilbride, and Edward Edmonds. And he was found guilty for all and received three life sentences for his crimes. Myra was charged with Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Edmonds and to being an accessory to the murder of John Gilbride. And she received two life sentences in prison. Sorry if you're going to get into this, but why would they charge her with murder? They had evidence because you said they that she was an accomplice, but that she was charged with murder for two of the cases? For Leslie Ann, they had the tapes. Oh, okay. And for Edward Edmonds, because they had David Smith testifying that Myra helped. Gotcha. Um, for John Gilbride, I just suspect that they didn't have strong yep. enough proof for that mm-hmm. one at that time. After the trial, Myra had maintained her innocence for many years. How did she explain the tape? She said that it was all Ian. And basically what she said was that she was a victim of him. So she's turning on him now. Because you said at first she said they were both innocent. Yeah. Okay. She did turn on him. It Mm -hmm. took years. And what she said was that, yeah, he was the mastermind. I was under his control. I was his victim like other people were. Several years later, she finally confessed And at this point, she really had no other options to get out of prison. She was eligible for parole at a certain point, and maintaining her innocence was not going to work for her, and she realized it, and she realized that no one believed it anymore. So she began to talk about, this took 20 years, just so you know, mind you, but she began to talk about her role in the murders and offered to help the police. Because she was hoping it would get her parole. She was hoping that. It was in response as well to Keith Bennett, remember one of the victims? Mm -hmm. Keith Bennett's mother wrote to Myra, pleading with her to please help. We can't find his body. All I wanted are his remains. I think this did provide somewhat of an impetus for Myra. She might have had some type of feelings, but I think she also realized that this was an opportunity for her to work Mm -hmm. with the police. Myra had been a model inmate all those years, mind you, for 20 years, and she had been advocating for her own release very publicly. And so this was another way she could try to basically secure parole. And you still have these two missing victims. You still had Pauline and Keith, who had never been recovered. Their families wanted their remains, and so did the police. Brady would also talk to the police, but it was different. So Ian talked to the police, but he'd only discussed two of the murders, Pauline and Keith. Ian Brady was extremely difficult, though. 
He would not allow the police to take notes when he came in. They said that he always had to be in control, dictating the course of actions that they took, how they did it. But Brady wasn't able to help them find the remains. It was long after. And Myra had trouble too. This was, mind you, 20 years. The terrain had changed. They couldn't remember exactly where anything was. Regarding Ian, there was Dr. Alan Keatley, a college tutor from the West Midlands, befriended Brady and asked him what his motivation was for targeting these children. Brady answered, existential exercises. In other words, testing his theory that he was free to live as he liked and seeing how far he could push it. Dark preoccupations were luring me to take the path of pure existentialism in which the will to dare all and suffer the consequences was becoming all important. Sounds delusional. What it really is is basically saying, because I wanted to. I wanted to do it. fancy way of saying that. Yeah, I wanted to do it. I wanted to see how far I could go. And because, you know, you people live a boring life, but I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. Brady said, the morons out there are the ones who are mad, people who live conventional, dull, boring lives. So his was anything but conventional, and he was pushing the boundaries. He also said, Myra was surprisingly in tune with me from the very beginning. I was never conscious of having to exert myself to coerce her into accepting my belief in relativist morality. She was as ruthless as I was. So he's now throwing her under the bus a little bit. Yeah, no, he definitely is. He didn't blame her and say she did certain things that he did, but he said she was she accepted this. Mm-hmm. She, she wasn't such a nice girl. Brady was also diagnosed as being chronically psychotic later on in life. So maybe you're right about the delusions. Mm-hmm. Suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, which was marked by perceptual disturbances, delusional ideas, disorganized thought and speech. This diagnosis came in 1985, and he went on a very long hunger strike and had to be force-fed from a tube. So what happened is that they didn't, the police didn't have any luck with him, but the police did have some more luck with Myra. She was helpful. She was able to locate the gravesite of Pauline. So the families and the, and the police were able to get Pauline's remains back. Ian Brady, meanwhile, goes on to die in prison after being bedridden for several years at the age of 79 from emphysema. Myra died in prison at age 60 after serious respiratory failure. They did not ever find Keith Bennett's body. However, after Brady's death, he left two locked suitcases for his lawyer to keep. The police and Bennett's family have hoped there'd be way, like clues to Keith's whereabouts in these suitcases. But to date, they've not been able to gain access to the documents in the suitcases. Very recently, there was talk of Home Secretary Priti Patel Patel, to bring in a new police crime sentencing and courts bill, which would force the killer's lawyer, solicitor, to grant police access to those briefcases. That's probably the last hope for finding the remains of this young boy. All right, Amy, I'm going to ask you what your thoughts are on Ian Brady, who I think is more straightforward. You mean... How can we explain Ian's behavior? Sure. The fact that he had conduct disorder, that really explains it all, right? He had antisocial tendencies from a young age. Yeah. And I don't I don't think you need much more other than, you know, you said he had a tough upbringing. I can't remember now. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. It was an awful childhood. Early conduct disorder, later antisocial behavior. I would also say, though, um, he had a preference for children, I believe. And I think his preference for children was around 10 to 12 some of his were victims of opportunity, but I think that's the age range. He was a pedophile, a sadistic pedophile. Yeah, he was a sadistic. You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, you have sexual offender versus sexual predator, which is different. The predator um, are more dangerous as they're not seeking, like a pedophile seeks to establish a relationship with the people. 
in the age group, so he wasn't seeking to establish it, which makes him, a, you know, a clear predator. He's the most dangerous sign. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair assessment to say he, he developed into full-blown psychopathy. Now, how about Myra? There's a couple big questions here. I mean, one of them is how do we explain her behavior? Would she have become a killer if she never met Ian? Was she a sadistic sexual killer if she didn't carry out the killing, but she enjoyed it? Is she a pleaser or is she a psychopath? So there's a lot of questions here. What what would be your opinion? I mean, she's clearly sadistic. I mean, that whether or not she participated in any of the crimes, like just knowing they were happening and being that accomplice, clearly sadistic. I think definitely sadistic tendencies. How do you explain it? Is there any criminological theory that comes to your mind, given the background that I told you about her as well? I mean, social, definitely social learning. She was, you know, learning from Ian. Well, she was learning from two people. Oh, her father's violence. Yes. Yeah. Well, I believe you mentioned that her father taught her the way to solve problems is to be violent. Obviously, yeah. if you you know you look at we're the most influenced by those closest to us. That was her father teaching her. This is the way we handle things. And then she meets this man who she clearly is enamored by, and he's violent. So it's just it's also reinforcement. You know, differential reinforcement too, right? It's reinforcing that violence gets you what you want because they didn't get caught right away. Each time they got away with it, that reinforces the fact that oh, this is working. So we're going to do it again. Absolutely. I think for her, you see, you definitely see social learning, which obviously differential association and differential reinforcement are under social learning. But it's just the idea that she was learning these behaviors from people around her. I agree. Learning theory. It's hard to evaluate female psychopathy as well because there aren't any solid measures or at least the PCLR and other diagnostic tools were not originally intended for women. And the little research on female psychopathy shows that There are similarities between male and female psychopaths, but they're different also in that women don't have the same criminal behaviors. They don't tend to show the same outward aggression. But you think she was a psychopath? I think maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, no, I do think she was. Mm -hmm. Their emotional feelings also differ. They tend to be more anxious. There are differences between males and females. But when I look at the shared characteristics, the lack of empathy, the penchant for manipulation, lying, need for stimulation and boredom, Mm -hmm. I think Myra does probably fit in there. I agree, though, that she was also probably socialized in some ways into violence. And she, I'm sure she had a personality disorder in there, too. Well, I'm, <laughs> if, if if she's antisocial, I mean, yeah. if we're talking about that is the personality disorder. And yeah, again, but psychopathy isn't. Well, psychopathy is the m- most extreme form. But I'm saying you could be antisocial without being psychopathic. Sorry. Yes, you can have antisocial traits without being. F- That's what I'm saying. So she, I think she might be antisocial. I don't know if she... If yeah. it escalates to psychopathy. I'm going to go, I'd go with full, I think yeah. I'd go with psychopathy. I think so, but I, I, I couldn't be positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond uh, beyond criminologically, there's the notoriety of Myra. So why the notoriety? First, she's a woman, and for that, she's more reviled than Ian. Um, she's a woman who committed sexual acts and murder against children, thus violating the gender role, especially of the 1960s of the housewife and mm-hmm. motherly woman. There's also the fact that just one year before their trial, Britain eliminated the death penalty. And so people were up in a row because they, they just escaped so They said it. these are the cases that deserve the death yes. penalty. Yes. And it was just like, God, if we had just held on to it for another year. There's also the relation to Rosemary West. Have you heard of her? Of course. Yes. Okay. So she's also a very notorious uh, serial killer. Um, and the fact that the incarceration of these two women overlapped Now, Rosemary West was much later. She was in the 1990s. But the comparisons made between them and the supposed 
relationship they briefly shared in prison. Really? Yes, they both had experiences with females later on, which happens in prison. But so uh, it, it became a thing when, when the two of them kind of... So they were romantically involved? Rumored that they were briefly romantically wow. involved. That's Cannot so confirm. interesting. But they also shared the same. They were both sadistic child serial killers mm-hmm. who killed with their partners and whose crimes involved sexual yeah. violence. And both very notorious cases in the UK. The only difference, and it's said that Myra was seen to look down on West because West killed some of her own children. Mm. And Myra is rumored to have felt superior to her. Whatever the reasons are, the legacy and reputation of Myra Henley lives on. And 55 years later, she is still dubbed the most evil woman in Britain. And we just want to say a big thank you again to Acorn TV for giving us the opportunity to bring you these additional four episodes. Don't forget to try your 30 days free at www.acorntv when you use promo code WOMEN. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include documentary The Moore's Murders, The New York Times, the documentary The Horrible Crimes of Myra Hindley, The Journal of Personality Disorders, Psychology Today, BBC News, The Daily Star, and The Sun.